When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Welcome to Football Social Daily, your Premier League podcast with a new episode each and every day of the season. And it's a season which continues to be a painful one for Norwich City as they prop up the Premier League table. It's been a far more enjoyable campaign, though, for West Ham United, who, with their 2-0 win over the Canaries last night, returned to the Champions League places thanks to a brace from Jared Bowen. We'll pick apart yesterday's game at London Stadium on the podcast today, as well as looking at how Chelsea booked their spot at Wembley for the Carabao Cup final. They beat Tottenham yet again last night to leave Conte Spurs with one less chance of winning a trophy this term. Who will join the Blues under the arch? That'll be Liverpool or Arsenal, of course. Those two play tonight at Anfield. The Reds without their African stars due to their Cup of Nations involvement. Does that give the Gunners the edge? Plus, the transfer window is really beginning to hot up with Newcastle and Aston Villa confirming their new signings. And will Manchester United see one defender leave and another arrive this month? I'm Niall McCorn and we'll get stuck into all of that on today's Football Social Daily in the company of Joel Tudor and Marley Anderson. Morning, fellas. Morning. Morning, guys. Is it like Christmas all over again, Marley, waking up today and seeing that Chris Wood has been announced as a Newcastle United player? (laughs) Maybe we wouldn't go that far. It's like instead of getting a lump of coal, you get a lump of wood at Christmas. And uh, yeah, nice little January signing, but good signing, as we've said. So, you know, fair enough. I think we're doing pretty decent business in terms of um, the first two weeks of the window. So happy days so far. Just need to win some games now. (laughs) Well, Norwich losing last night was a benefit to Newcastle United. Um, I suppose you would have been cheering on West Ham last night, Marley, would you? They they beat Norwich 2-0 in the end in the Premier League. Yeah, uh, I didn't didn't watch it or anything like that, but it's sort of inevitable. Norwich are never going to win away at West Ham, you don't think. And you just thought maybe it's these types of games where, you know, like Norwich sometimes play quite well against decent teams um, and they just got rolled over by West Ham last night I think they, they just weren't really in it didn't really have many chances and it was just a sort of a um, a sort of what do you call it like a just a, a straightforward easy one-sided. win one-sided yeah, yeah just yeah. procession yeah. I think yeah yeah procession exactly yeah so you know it's yeah. daft not in terms of scoreline obviously because it finished 2-0 Jared Bowen scored both goals but I think you're right when it comes to Norwich Marley, I mean, their only really chance, only real chance I can remember, and actually watching the highlights this morning, it's the only chance that's been put into the highlights package. Was like a twenty-five yard strike 
which was hit sweetly by Adam Eder and it was tipped onto the post by Fabianski, but it feels like those are the sorts of moments that Norwich are going to have to create on a game-by-game basis in order to get out of the trouble that they're in. But it is West Ham who are back in the top four of the Premier League with victory, 2-0 over Norwich, as I say. And we said yesterday, Joel, when it comes to West Ham and their aim to finish in the Champions League spots this season, that you have to beat sides like Norwich if you want to get into the Champions League places. And Declan Rice said something interesting a couple of weeks ago. I think it was just around Christmas or maybe just before Christmas, in fact, when the Hammers had lost the game. He said, you know, we can't be losing games like this and be a Champions League team. The two just don't compute. They don't add up. So in order to get into the Champions League places, much like we said yesterday, you have to beat sides like Norwich get those points on the board and that's exactly what they did last night. Exactly. I think in previous seasons this would have been a game that the 100% slipped up at but I think we're underestimating just how bad Norwich actually are. Um, I think they went seven Premier League games straight without a goal um, through November and December and it's just with West Ham I think everyone was expecting a really bad slump after such a good start to the season obviously I think it's already happened now at the start of December when after that really good Chelsea victory early December they ended up losing to Arsenal away then they lost to Chelsea um, they lost to Tottenham in the Carabao Cup then they lost to Southampton at home and everyone started to think that the house of cards was starting to collapse a little bit but it seems as though they've got their act together and now I think more than ever they've needed other players to start raising their shoulders a little bit and chipping in with the goals because prior to that it was Mikel Antonio who they had to keep relying on for the goals and he's been propping them up a lot but now Jared Bowen seems to be really coming into his own in terms of obviously he got two goals last night um, and he was the one who was in a way making his mark because Mikel Antonio missed a couple of very good chances which may have cost him in the game but um, I think if they can just keep this consistency instead of like the slump that we saw early December then they're in with a definite fighting chance when it gets to the end of the season but considering the fact that they're in still the Europa League they probably will go pretty far in that Um, and then you've got the FA Cup I think everyone's just waiting on them to have a big congested run of fixtures, but I think they've proved that they can come out on the other end. They've got a pretty good squad depth. Um, they don't suffer too badly with injuries. Obviously, Ben Rahm is the only player who's out, and obviously he's at the African Cup of Nations. Um, so now it is time for other players to step up, and Bowen definitely did that yesterday. Yeah, we'll talk about Jared Bowen in a second, but you talk about West Ham and them being in the Europa League and still in the FA Cup and trying to get into the Champions League uh, at the end of the season. But do you think, Marley, that David Moyes is the sort of manager that will prioritise one competition over the other? Or do you think that it's a case of we're in such a good position as a club and as a team at the moment that we may as well just try and fight on all fronts because it's not often that West Ham have the opportunity to win something or achieve something. So it would be a bit foolish for me to try and either prioritise one over the other. I don't know what your thoughts are. Uh, yeah, with with West Ham, I think like they're on sort of a a real high at the minute. And like, for me, it wouldn't make much sense to to say, you know, we're going to try and win the FA Cup or we're going to try and qualify for the league or we're going to prioritise the Europa League. So I feel like you've just got to sort of see where this takes you because this time two years ago, you know, West Ham were were in... Uh, they're looking like they were, all, they were in the relegation battle. They were very much fighting for their survival. Um, and then they've turned this round and they've they've gone from, like, 
zero to a hundred real, real quick. So I feel like sort of voluntarily putting a pin in it and saying, we'll try for this one and try for that. I don't think that's the way to go. So I can't see Moyes doing that. I feel like just do it. Just fight for everything you possibly can. You might not get anything, but you know, 90% of the teams in the world never win things. So it's not really a a situation where you have to win something for the future of the club. It's like anything West Ham could possibly win or achieve is a huge bonus. Like no one would have expected two years ago for them to be in the Europa League knockout stages now. It's like 99% of West Ham fans would have been like, what are you talking about if you if you told them that in two years' time, when they were scrapping away in 17th, 18th a couple of years ago, if you'd have said you'd be in the Europa League knockout stages in two years' time, they'd have all laughed at you. So... This sort of little adventure that they're on, and like this this wave that they're riding, is uh, should be ridden for as long as possible. Because I think when if if they if they go backwards voluntarily, it can only lead to one thing, and that's uh, selling your best players. And Declan Rice will go, um, and you won't be able to attract as many players. So try and try and go for everything you possibly can there's no point in putting a pin in it just on a voluntarily volunteer basis sort of thing so let's just go for everything if I, if I was a West Ham fan I'd be saying let's just go for everything um and see what happens see where this adventure takes us because it might end up with the Europa League semi-final or qualifying for the Champions League you never know because that fourth spot is is wide open like nobody knows who's going to get that in the Premier League Spurs have still got loads of work to do to get there Arsenal can be amazing or absolute dog poo every every week. So, you know, there's the Leicester aren't looking great. West Ham is sort of the most, almost the most consistent of those characters uh, in that battle. So let's, let's just see where it goes. Well, West Ham obviously won last night thanks to two goals from Jared Bowen. And you mentioned about squad depth a moment ago, Joel. But the one area of the field I think West Ham really struggle in terms of that depth is at the top end of the pitch. If Mikhail Antonio isn't playing, they don't have a conventional number nine striker. But what they do have in Jared Bowen is someone who's able to play a, a number of different roles. He can drift out wide, he can play in behind the striker in a 10 role, and he's also played as a number nine at times um, in Antonio's absence as well. How much do you think he's come on this season in particular? Scoring twice last night, the first was a header in which he really made a, a great piece of movement, ran in between two defenders and got his head on the ball, and that was determination and albeit poor defending from Norwich, but credit has to go to Jared Bowen because he's not a big guy. So to get his head on that between two big centre-halves and nod it into the corner was, I think, a very good finish. How, how much do you think he's improved since his arrival from Hull City, what, 18 months ago? Yeah, um, with Bowen, obviously, I don't think many saw it coming when he initially moved to Hull City. Uh, sorry, moved from Hull City. Um, he seems to have just really progressed massively in his game in terms of he's becoming a very big pivotal part of the West Ham side and I think I remember Jurgen Klopp really singing his praises not long ago um, I think he was, he's been linked with a move to Liverpool for quite some time now and I think that move may end up happening if he's not careful <laughs> if West Ham fans are not going to like that but the way he's been playing at the moment I wouldn't be surprised if that ends up happening just because he's not only becoming a good player but he's influencing games and when a player can start doing that in the attacking setup, then obviously you're going to have eyes all over you. And I think the biggest part is the fact that West Ham at the start of the season had been relying heavily on uh, Mikel Antonio to kind of bail them out of many games. 
And now it just seems as though as the season's progressing, a lot of the other players are really starting to find the feet. Because obviously, you know, last season, there was a period of time where Thomas Suchek was, I think he scored five or six in a in a, um, in a a month. And then obviously Jesse Lingard came in and he stole the show. Whereas now you're starting to see more characters start to find themselves in that West Ham side. But it'd be interesting to see, like going off what Marley said, because... West Ham, they don't want to find themselves being a victim of their own success where, let's say they did win an FA Cup, and this is the kind of interesting point with relation to Portsmouth as well with winning a trophy, is that let's say they were to win the FA Cup or let's say they got to the final, they didn't win it, um, they missed out on top four. You can almost guarantee that some of the players in that squad like Declan Rice... Um, Maybe Thomas Suchek, Jared Bowen, they might they're gonna be targets for probably some most of the top six sides, one hundred percent. And then that means that obviously West Ham will have to face filling all these massive voids in the squad. So I hundred percent think that this season is a season that David Moyes, if he can, he needs to go full throttle on every single competition because he doesn't know when he's gonna get the chance to do this again with the same crop of players, it might not happen because Declan Rice isn't going to hang around there forever unless they can get top four and start cementing themselves as a real top four side. So it's really, for me, it's now or never. You can't start preparing for the future because the future next year, he might have a different squad and that means inevitably they're going to drop off. So for me, they have to go for it. Yeah, I think you're right. It's a case of striking whilst the iron's hot. And I've mentioned this to Jim before, of course, who is a West Ham supporter. And I think he feels a similar way. I mean, football's all about moments in time. And, you know, a moment in time is now for West Ham. And it's something they need to to capitalise on and and try and win something. Because, you know, the last time West Ham got to a, a cup final, I think, was 2006. So, I mean, they're really enjoying themselves at the moment, those West Ham supporters, and rightly so. But... You know, you don't get anything in the trophy cabinet for finishing fifth. Um, you know, as Leicester City will, will, you know, know all too well, having finished fifth in the last two seasons. But they did win the FA Cup last year, did Leicester. And that's a moment that all of the supporters will never forget. And they still talk about well over a year on. So I think that's what it's all about when it comes to, to being successful in, in the English game in particular. That's just my opinion, of course. Um, it's going to take a lot, though, Marley, for... Norwich City to be successful this season I suppose success for them would be staying in the Premier League they are currently bottom of the table they are a point worse off than your side Newcastle United and Burnley are also the third team inside that relegation zone as things stand they just can't score goals they've drawn yet another blank in the Premier League I think that's five or six games in a row now in the top flight that they haven't scored a goal their last Premier League goal was back in November does that, to you, just scream that that's their biggest problem? What do you think their biggest issues are at Norwich City? Is it that they can't score? Is it that they're poor defensively? I mean, the statistics would suggest it's everything. <laughs> I was going to say it's hard to uh, to pinpoint it. Um, I I would say every well, look first and foremost, everything needs improving. But I I actually think it's the midfield. You know, I've I've thought for a couple of years, um, like when they come up last time. They went down with a defence which got three quarters of it poached by Premier League teams. Godfrey, um, Lewis, uh, sorry, half of it because Godfrey and Lewis both went. Aaron's almost went to Bayern. Um, There was talks about Liverpool taking him and and other big, big teams. So you suggest there was talent there and it's similar this year with uh, Max Aaron still there. Um, They don't have the worst players at the back. I think the defence is weaker than it was. 
But for me, I think it's the midfield. There's no, there's not much chance creation, and there's not much protection for that back four. I think is that since Buendia got sold to Aston Villa? Do you think that's the biggest issue that they found? It doesn't help. Um, but I remember looking at them even two years ago, and I thought, like, once you get past the the first wave of pressure, there's nothing in that second wave. Like I think last time they might have had Alex Tete and um, and Kenny McLean. Like look. I'm not being funny, but who who is Kenny McLean? Like, what what has he ever done in in the game? I th- I think he needs massive improvement in that area, because you need someone who's like you need a, a a bit of a sort of junkyard dog type player who's just not going to leave you alone. And if you go past him, he'll just boot you. And I feel like they're a bit uh, a bit light there, like that you get at them, and then all of a sudden you're at the back four because you know, and as good as your back four is, if you're getting you know, midfielders past your midfielders and then you've got strikers to deal with, usually a front three or whatever, you're knackered and, you know, you, you're always going to lose that battle. You're always, you're always going to concede goals. So I think with uh, with Norwich, I, I would improve there. I think Gilmore's a, a good start, but he's a young player and he needs a, a, he needs a quality player alongside him, I think, Billy Gilmore, to get the, the real best out of him. Um, and I'm looking at the, the wingers. I mean, Josh Sargent's one of the most just ineffective players I've ever seen in the Premier League. He is completely <laughs> useless. Like it's, I remember we we sort of had a a joke about him on the on the socials um, when he signed because he just doesn't look like a footballer. He looks like an IT geek or something like that. He just nothing nothing about him looks like a footballer. And then he gets on the pitch and looks even less like a footballer because he just sort of runs around and doesn't affect the game and doesn't. I don't think he scored a goal this season. Um, he he misses chance. I remember he missed one against Newcastle when we had, when we had ten men and we were hanging on. He missed from about two yards. All he needed to do was connect connect with the ball, and he didn't do it. And I was just thinking, I'm so glad you're crap because we'd be, we'd been uh, have lost that game and it would have been bottom of the league at the time. So I just think they've got a lot of ineffective players. And then you look at like Pookie and Pookie's a got a decent record and stuff. We know he can score goals, but. You need to create chances for him, and the likes of Sargent and Milot, Rashica, they're, they're just not doing anything um, to to bring him any any service. Cantwell's been injured here and there, and the talks of him leaving. Um, there's a few of them which they just don't have enough of anything. They're not good enough defensively. They don't create enough chances. They don't keep possession well enough. They don't press well enough. They don't score goals. They don't cross particularly well. Um, they just sort of play nice nice football. And then you take the ball off them, and you go straight through them like a hot knife through butter, and it's not, it's not good enough. It's not a recipe to uh, to stay in the Premier League anytime soon. Yeah, they're just not in terms of physically, but they're just weak, aren't they? You don't ever come up against Norwich and think, "Well, we're going to have a tough game today." You know, it's it's almost yeah. as if, okay, we're playing Norwich. Um, if we lose, that will be a shock. If we draw, that will be a shock. I've mentioned this a few times on the podcast. I think there's just this mentality around the club which existed under Daniel Farker and probably is still lingering on under Dean Smith which is last time they were in the Premier League they finished bottom and ended up getting smashed their season peaked in September where they somehow beat Manchester City 2-1 at the Etihad and you know the season starts in August and doesn't finish in September it finishes in May so I, I just kind of feel like they've still got a hangover from the last time they're in the Premier League because no doubt when they go down to the championship next season because I do think they will get relegated they'll probably be in and amongst the mix to bounce straight back again 
because I think yeah. that the players that they'll they probably ha- win it by ten points again. Yeah, most likely because I think the players that they have are, are conditioned to the championship and they know they can do the job and be successful in the championship. But when you put those same players in the Premier League, their memories of the Premier League are getting beaten and not scoring a goal every week. And the same thing's happening now as it did last time. So, you know, albeit with probably. Uh, fewer good players as you mentioned so I think that's the biggest problem that they've got and at the moment they are bottom of the table at the moment West Ham are fourth with that 2-0 victory over the Canaries so I suppose Joel my question here would be do you think that the table is going to look like this for these two teams come the end of the season so we're now in January mid-January the season doesn't end until early May so do you think that West Ham will finish fourth and do you think that Norwich will stay bottom of the table I don't think West Ham will finish fourth and that's purely because I just feel as though Tottenham and Arsenal have towards the latter ends of the season and we've seen it for the last couple of years now West Ham and Leicester have fallen massively short when it comes to the last five six games I don't know if it's a a, a psychological thing where the pressure is massively high or they just end up running on no steam at all and obviously let's not forget this was when West Ham had no cup competitions towards the end of last season uh, and I, I don't think yeah Leicester were out of um, Europe as well so it's, it's, it's a case of just squad depth when it comes to the end and getting that consistency when it matters so I'd be, I'd be massively surprised but I mean who's to say that they can't because they're still well in above it and I, I did say that if they were around it come Christmas then they're in with a fighting chance of course but I think it's probably testament to the fact that every other team around them just can't get any consistency going whatsoever so I'd be very surprised if they ended up doing that. But in terms of Norwich, I mean, they look like a championship side already. They look ready to rebound next year and come back up with the same squad. So I would not be surprised if, well, when you look, even when you just look at the goals scored, I mean, they've scored eight, they, I mean, sorry, they've, yeah, they've scored eight goals all season, which is half of the next worst, which is Burnley with 16, just under half. So it's, it's a massive problem and if you're not going to score goals you're not going to stay up as Michael Owen as that quote is is you're just not going to stay up I can put it any other way it's just that's the way it is so um yeah eight goals you're going down aren't you and it's you just got to face reality and you can't rely on Timu Puki's 2020 season when he scored eight goals in the first like 10 games and just died off so um yeah they, they failed to replace him and I think the only team that potentially could get dragged into it is Watford at the moment, um, who are equally as struggling with goals. I think Emmanuel Dennis has pretty much scored 80% of their goals this season. So, yeah, I, they're not going to stay up for me. They're just, they've just not got consistency and most of all, they haven't got goals. I think Watford are already in the mix, to be honest with you. At least that's how I see things. But you're right, in true Michael Owen fashion, when they don't score, they hardly ever win. And Norwich City don't score. Um, as you mentioned, only eight goals. They drew a blank again last night, beating 2-0 in the Premier League by West Ham. The Hammers fourth, Norwich stay rock bottom. That's it for the Premier League action. But there were two Premier League sides playing against each other last night in a different competition. It was, of course, the second leg of the Carabao Cup semi-final between Spurs and Chelsea. Chelsea booked their place at Wembley. We'll talk about that next here on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. 
Welcome back to Football Social Daily, your daily Premier League show from Sports Social. If you hit subscribe, that way you won't miss an episode of the podcast again. Chelsea will be heading to Wembley. They beat Tottenham 1-0 in the second leg of their EFL Cup semi-final last night to go with their 2-0 victory in the home tie at Stamford Bridge. So 3-0 on aggregate it finished. Spurs not registering a goal. It was Chelsea's Rudiger who scored their goal uh, to secure passage to Wembley if it wasn't already secured after that 2-0 first leg victory uh, that 18 minute header from Rudiger certainly sealed the deal when it comes to seeing the Blues under the arch again do you think that Antonio Rudiger will eventually get this new contract at Chelsea Marley or do you think the Blues would be happy to explore other avenues because we've seen since Thomas Tuchel has come into the club in particular, just how important and how effective he's been at centre-back for Chelsea. And he's also got an eye for goal at times, which is not a bad trait to have as a centre-back. Um, I don't know how this one's going to end, because from all intents and purposes, it looks like he wants to leave. He fancies he fancies his chances of getting to Real Madrid or uh, a really a big European club. Um, I think Madrid have been the most linked with him. So I, if I had to put... Money on it, I would say he would he would leave. But then I think Tuchel said recently, hasn't he, that he he feels like he he might stay and uh, he, he's confident of getting a um, a deal sorted out. But managers say that, don't they? Managers say that so that fans don't get annoyed and the season doesn't get um, another narrative chucked at it. With uh, when if Chelsea ever lose games, is it you know it doesn't become or is it because Rudiger's contracts uh, expiring and everybody's thinking about that? So. Um, I don't really know, but I think <laughs> I think Rudiger's never he's never played this well, um, and I think it can go two ways when when players find something. They like it, I think it's clear that Rudiger's found another level to his game. He's never been this good before, um, so it I think it it depends on players and what they what they think because some players think I'm playing amazing. Um, it's the manager. Um, it's a manager, it's this team, it's this environment, it's this system, and it gets the best out of me. And some players think, ah, Mint, I finally hit my peak. Uh, let's let's move. Where can I go? Where can I get to Real Madrid? Because if there's a chance I can get to Real Madrid, then why wouldn't you take it? Because, but, you know, some people are happy playing well. Some people want to take that chance and believe their own hype sometimes. Like, I personally don't think Rudiger would be as good at Real Madrid because uh, Real Madrid play with a back four. And Chelsea play with the back three, and it's ironically since the back three came in at Chelsea that Rudiger's found found his best position in that left sided centre back role, where he can use his his physicality a little bit more. He can use his his speed and not be um, not be culpable for any mistakes he makes. Because if he makes a mistake, he's got two more centre backs um, to help him out. One of them's Thiago Silva, who's probably one of the best readers of the game there there's been in the past twenty years. So you're looking at that and saying, I think I think he's got everything he needs now to be at Chelsea um, and to be one of the top centre backs in the league. He scores goals. He's getting. He's improving his attacking side of the game. When, whenever you watch Chelsea, um, and they're sort of they're faced with a sort of low low block, like eight men behind the ball type of thing. Rudiger's the one who, who sprints out and ends up on the left wing and creates that overlap on the on the left hand side because then uh, he gives Chelsea three players on that left hand side. Um, to to sort of create a, an advantage on that side, and he can get shots away because nobody wants to come and mark him because he's a centre back, so they let him come forward. He can get shots away, he can put crosses in, and he scores goals from set pieces as well. So, if I was him, I'd be thinking, 
right, this this team is perfect for me. We've just won the Champions League. We are capable of being in the title race. Obviously, it's not going that well this season, but there's no reason why they can't have a fresh crack at it next year. Um, there's no reason why they can't win the FA Cup um, or the Carabao Cup as they're in the final. So it's, I don't see any obvious um, reason to leave. If I'm honest, um, for me, I would I would stay and try and win the Premier League and try and win the Champions League and other trophies again. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting one because in his body language and in his attitude, he doesn't look like a player who wants to leave. And it feels like in what we've seen in the reports that Rudiger's a player who wants to stay, but Chelsea are uh, you know umming and ahhing over a new contract and whether that's to do with the remuneration involved or some of the agreements that the player wants remains to be seen. But it was him who scored the goal last night that ensured Chelsea won the game 1-0. Spurs, though, had a bit of a nightmare when it came to VAR, Joel, yesterday. They had a goal disallowed for offside, which exposed a number of people who don't actually know the offside rule because it was one of those ones where the goalkeeper comes flying out and then there's a defender behind the ball and people don't understand how offside clearly works and it's the second last defender but we won't go into the rules of the game um they also had a couple of penalties as well i think overturned by var um they were awarded by the referee and then var intervened and changed the decision um me and marley criticized var on Tuesday's podcast after Monday's game with Manchester United and Aston Villa in the FA Cup. So it's not the first time that we've criticised VAR, but was this an example last night of a referee being saved by the technology? Because he made a number of wrong decisions, and if VAR wasn't there, uh, Chelsea could have been wrongly done. Yeah, exactly. Without VAR last night, Chelsea would have been out of the competition. So I'm sure if you ask many Chelsea fans what you think of VAR after last night, I'm sure they'll be siding for a tiny bit more than they were in previous weeks. But I'm trying to, it's like the cause and effect. Is it the fact that the officiating was so poor? Because I think with, for example, the the first one where I think it was Lucas Moore who got tripped just outside of the box. I mean, the linesman surely has a good view of where he's been tripped. Or at least Andrew Mariner has a decent a line of vision in terms of where he was tripped. I know it happens at like 100 miles an hour, but I think this was a good circumstance where VAR is is essential because obviously two penalties got overruled and without that, they would have happened. And the second one especially, I mean, the goalkeeper... I don't understand how he actually got that second one wrong because the goalkeeper clearly... You can see how much the ball moves in the first instance. Um, and again, this was just the perfect example of how it should be used, which is overturning decisions like that, which in any normal world would have been given. Like, for example, if this was an FA Cup game, or in an FA Cup game would have been used, but in any normal world before VAR, the, the scoreline would have been very, very different. Um, as Chelsea have, have had in the past, I remember a Luis Garcia one, which probably would have got overturned if it was for VAR being in there. So... Yeah, this is the way it should be used, but the officiating is just getting worse and worse. I mean, two penalty calls in a row that have been overturned. But then I don't mm. mind it because it means VA, that's what VAR is there for. It's the correct decisions which shouldn't have been. Um, it's just the ones that are very contentious, contentious, cons, a little bit straight, contentious, tongue twister then. Contentious where, um, you know, for example, even after VAR, people are still looking at the decision thinking that's still not a penalty or that's still not a foul this is consistency and at least with these decisions they're very black and white I would say in terms of the two that happened yesterday uh, but yeah I mean after the first goal 
Tottenham are pretty much done I would say it's just the defence is just so frail it's unbelievable um, but yeah and it, yesterday was just a great example and I remember in the 2018 World Cup when it was first starting to roll out that's how it was meant to be used but when there's no consistency that's where you have problems yeah I definitely think that VAR was a benefit last night but you know again it, it steals the headlines I saw a match report for last night's game this morning saying Chelsea through to Wembley as Spurs suffer VAR misery. I just think, why is VAR in the headline (laughs) of the news article? I mean, yes, VAR played a part, but at the end of the day, the right decisions were made. And if the referee gets that decision right and gives a free kick on the edge of the box instead of a penalty... There's no chance that that ends up in the, in the you know the headlines. And I watched the highlights of the game this morning because I didn't watch the game in full, and they showed the VAR incident where the penalty was given, but then it was pulled back for a foul outside the box, and then the free kick that came from that ended up spiraling into nothing. Spurs didn't make the most of it, and so therefore it's kind of a an incident in the game which was amplified because the wrong decision was made and I think that that is something that the whole the whole reason VAR was brought in was to eliminate that but it feels like we've brought more focus on it as a result anyway I want to move on from VAR now and talk a little bit more generally about Tottenham because they're now out of the Carabao Cup they're still in the FA Cup they're out of the Europa Conference League because they were thrown out so they've got two competitions left Mali. they've got the FA Cup as I say and they've got the Premier League do you think Antonio Conte can finish fourth with Tottenham and win the FA Cup this season? Because we all mentioned about how Tottenham need a trophy. Spurs need to win that first piece of silverware since 2008. But also, I'm under the impression that the influences from above in terms of Daniel Levy and his requirements and his needs and wants are to finish in the Champions League places because financially that's the most lucrative for Tottenham Hotspur. So no doubt finishing fourth is the aim for Spurs. But also, so is winning a trophy. Do you think Conte can do both, or is it just going to be too big an ask? Uh, it's. I think it'll be too big an ask, if I'm honest. Um, I think it's a bit of a catch twenty two situation, really, because I think Spurs. I think the biggest thing for Spurs as a club is to win a trophy and stop getting this Spursy type of uh, label every time they get to the later stages of a competition. Stop, stop ballsing it up. But yeah, ultimately, Daniel Levy would rather get them back in the Champions League and so they can attract players and get more money pumped through the club with uh, with all the prize money and whatever that comes from finishing fourth and getting into the Champions League. It's it's a huge financial benefit and it probably, if they haven't got one already, it helps the uh, the sponsorship of the stadium, which will bring them a lot more money as well, which they I think they're still trying to sell the naming rights because um, it's, it's still called the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, which winds me up no end because whenever you're writing it in a match a match preview or a match report you're like you've you said Tottenham like three times and then you're like what right where did the play oh Tottenham Hotspur Stadium so you've got to say it again it's well annoying um they should have just kept it as White Hart Lane shouldn't they I mean yeah. it's a side little side point that we're making but why didn't they just call it new White Hart Lane or just White Hart Lane yeah, I mean, Sintra's, well, Sintra's sponsoring them as well. I think, I'm sure they'd chuck a load of money on it. They, they seem to be sponsoring everything else. <laughs> sponsoring dogs in the street, them lot, Christ. The sponsors Scottish League too as well. I noticed <laughs> it the other day. <laughs> Madness, man. But yeah, I, th- I think with, with Spurs, you know, just there has to be some level of success. I mean, yes, they're out of everything this season other than the FA Cup. Um, I actually think their season's in quite a strong position right now because... They can use the rest of this season. They can use January, obviously, to, to sign players and sell players if, if they need to. 
um, or if they can, and uh, use the rest of this the, the next four months as an experiment. Everyone's on audition, you know. Um, ben Davis at centre back is he is he the best centre back? No. Can he do a job? You've got four months to do that job, mate. So, you know, otherwise you, we can sell you in the summer because there'll be targets lined up for centre-back to come in. Um, Larissa's future is still in a little bit of doubt. Um, he might sign a deal. He might He might not. He might uh, leave with, you know, he might go back to France or something. I don't know. There's the Kane situation. Everything's got to sort itself out. So I feel like if Spurs are going to do anything, they have to use this season as, as a bit of an experiment. And uh, and come again next season because six months under Conte, seven months under Conte, and two transfer windows. I feel like after that, you're in a position to to see what he can do with the squad. He's already said this is a massive challenge, um, and I think he's he's made quotes that say that that basically imply that his squad's not good enough. So you need to give him the chance to get that squad good enough because we all know he's a he's a born winner. He's a serial winner. He's won things wherever he's been. So the issue isn't him. I think everyone's got the trust that the issue would be the squad if success doesn't come. Um, so let's use this this rest of the season now to uh, to see where the squad is in the summer. And then you can go from there and build on next season and hopefully pick up a decent FA Cup run along the way. If you get a good, you know, if, if other teams draw each other and knock each other out, you might end up with a... Um, a, a relatively simple route to the final. Then it's a one-off game, so you're always uh, you're always in that position to maybe nick something as well. So we'll see. We'll have to see what happens with Spurs, I suppose. Yeah, well, Spurs won't be winning the Carabao Cup. They are out. Chelsea are at Wembley. That final in the Carabao Cup will take place at the end of February. And joining Chelsea will be either one of Liverpool or Arsenal. The two sides meet at Anfield this evening. This is Liverpool's first domestic cup semi-final for five years, Joel. Does that surprise you at all? Because we've just spoken about Tottenham and can they do a cup and Champions League fourth place finish double. We've spoken about West Ham. Can they fight on all fronts? It seems like in terms of priorities, domestic cups have not been at the top of Liverpool's shortlist in recent years. It's been more the Champions League and the Premier League. So with that in mind, is it a surprise that they've not reached a domestic cup semi for five years? It is a surprise just in terms of how quality this Liverpool side's been for the last five years. But yeah. I mean, in terms of priorities, like you say, Jurgen Klopp's been tunnel vision on the Premier League for a long time since he came now. And I don't recall a game like in the FA Cup or in the Carabao Cup where he's really put a very, very strong side out. It just seems as though he uses it as a method to get uh, rest for his main guys. And then obviously when he has a Champions League knockout game or when he has um, a Premier League game that's a big one, he'll obviously go all out for that. I'm trying to recall if in in Dortmund he actually went crazy for the DFB Pokal uh, Cup or the German Cup, but I only recall him really going for the league in in Germany. So I, I feel as though with Liverpool, he's just... And because he knows the history of Liverpool and how much it means to them for European glory and trying to bring back the Premier League, I feel as though it's just instilled in the side a little bit where the domestic cups aren't really seen as something to shout about or something that can be deemed as a success um, when, you know, you've got... He won won the cup just once at Dortmund. 
it was in 2011-12 when they won the double. So they also won the Bundesliga at the same time. So um, I'm not sure how long he was manager of Dortmund. It was a few years, yeah, but it's just the one cup success. Yeah, I think it was around four years. Um, yeah, so I don't, I don't know if you can kind of make associations with the two, but I mean, with this Liverpool side, it's definitely better than that Dortmund side. So he should have 100% have gone a little bit further. It's, it is quite surprising just one semi-final or the first semi-final Um which, you know, obviously we all know how quality this Liverpool side is. And um, I don't know whether it's the fact that there's just so much emphasis on this Liverpool-Manchester City battle for the Premier League in the last years that he just doesn't want to let up against Guardiola. It seems as though they have a bit of a, a personal vendetta against each other. And obviously Manchester City's depth is way stronger than uh, Liverpool's depth, so they can afford to play their second team which is probably good enough to challenge for the Premier League um, because obviously you know when Liverpool start benching Salah when they start benching Mane when they start benching Firmino suddenly that team looks very very short um, whereas you know if City bench Raheem Sterling or if City bench Mares, they've got the likes of Bernardo Silva Grealish it looks as strong on paper as the plays that they just bench so not every side has the fortune of doing that um but yeah it is surprising because even still they should have the quality to do it but yeah i think it's a it's a case of prioritization and for klopp it's all about european and premier league glory do you know where i think that comes from joel i think that comes from jürgen klopp liking to pick a rigid first choice 11 whereas you know fantasy football players listening in will know the cursed pep roulette as he changes his team every week but i think in doing so he he kind of brings everyone up to a level whereas and that and that's not to say that the liverpool you know squad players aren't at a decent level because they undoubtedly are but someone like divock Origi, for example you know is known to come on and make an impact in the final 10 5 minutes of games things like that whereas from the start he just isn't as impactful and he isn't as good put it that way but it's the same as you know gabriel jesus wasn't as good as sergio aguero but you know, he was given enough game time to be able to kind of get up to a level in which that he could, you know, be adequate in, in replacing Aguero when required in the starting eleven. So I think that's probably a, a difference between the two managers that I've noticed. And there has been some controversy over this game, which was originally scheduled to take place, um, I think, a week or so ago. Um, the game was postponed by the EFL originally uh, uh, after Liverpool's request due to false COVID positives that Liverpool had. Um, I don't want to get down the wormhole and the controversy of was Jurgen Klopp lying or not because I don't think that's the right thing to do but the fact of the matter is the game's been cancelled and rescheduled for tonight and they have no Mane no Salah because both are at the African Cup of Nations as is Nabi Kaita. so with all of those things in mind which still would have been the case a week ago regardless of whether the game was called off in a dodgy fashion or not does that give Arsenal the edge surely that the Gunners have to have the edge Marley now that you consider some some of Liverpool's best players are, are missing yeah but but I, I don't know with Arsenal I'm, I'm always uh never confident of saying you know they've they've got an advantage because they never play like they've got when when the things go in their favor they seem to sort of bottle it a little bit and, and turn in a, a bit of a stinker um, so I, I think this evens the playing field, if I'm honest. I think Arsenal against Liverpool wouldn't have much of a chance if they had Salah and Mane, if you take them out of that team and you put in maybe the reserve goalkeeper, for example, um, for, for Liverpool. I think that evens the score a little bit. So I'm intrigued to to to, to see this game tonight. I don't know how it's going to go because Arsenal do have 
the talent to go and beat Liverpool, this Liverpool. But I don't know if they... I mean, looking at them at the weekend, I thought Arsenal were were awful. And it was just like, can you... You've got the talent. You just need to have... The, I think you need to have the belief that you can go and beat Liverpool uh, and get to a final. Because, as we've said, you know, Klopp, Klopp's sort of... Uh, uh, relationship with this Carabao Cup is is kind of like an unwanted child. He's not really asked about it. He just he's just like oh for God's sake, like it's just something. <laughs> it's just another thing to do on a Thursday. I think he'd rather be home munching on a bratwurst or whatever he does on a Thursday night. I'd, I'd, you know, it's <laughs> well actually, Marley he said that there was a big misunderstanding about the levels of priority when it comes to this competition, mm. and actually that it's quite high on the list. But is it only high on the list now that there are a couple of games from Wembley? Well, Whereas at the start of the season, it probably wouldn't have been anywhere near the top of their priority. Well, what's what's the misunderstanding? Everybody, everybody's seen you, you know, bin it off in the last couple of years, so where's the misunderstanding coming from? I don't really, I don't get what he's saying with that. Um, I understand they, they, they'd probably want to win it, but when you've won everything else... You know what is you've you've won the Premier League and you won the Champions League in the last uh, two or three years. So winning, I understand that winning the Carabao Cup is not a bigger thing. Like it's a big, it's a way bigger thing for for Spurs, for example, rather than a Liverpool who've already won bigger bigger trophies very very recently. So I don't really buy this whole. It's still an important trophy to us because I don't think it is to them. Um, they just happen to be good enough to that their squad players can get to the the final four. Of the uh, of the competition without really being tested. Well, Liverpool and Arsenal clash tonight at Anfield. The first leg of the Carabao Cup semi-final will give us some indication of who could be on their way to Wembley to face Chelsea in that final. Time for another break now on Football Social Daily. Of course, we are 13 days into the January transfer window, and we'll talk about the latest next after this. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Football's Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Welcome back. The January transfer window is in full swing, 13 days in, and Chris Wood to Newcastle United has now been confirmed. The Burnley striker has put pen to paper at St. James's Park and becomes their latest addition. And whilst we've been recording the podcast, Luca Dean to Aston Villa from Everton has been confirmed. Uh, we spoke about both on, on yesterday's podcast and the day before. Um, but I thought that the Luca Dean situation was the most interesting here, Joel, because he seemed to have left a parting shot at Rafa Benitez on his Instagram page. He suggested something along the lines of he was happy at Everton, but every good journey needs to come to an end. And he mentioned that it took one person from outside to spoil his magical relationship with the club. I'm paraphrasing here what Luca Dean has to say. Of course, if you want the full quote from the uh, fullback, then go on to his Instagram page and find it. But it was kind of a, a, a parting shot at Rafa Benitez, a dig, let's just say. Uh, does that surprise you? Because it, it feels like he didn't really want to leave Everton and that, that the stubbornness of Benitez has almost forced him out. You know, what was hilarious with the quote that he did was the fact that at the start he said, you know, I'm not going to make this a war of words. And then he just went on to give the most subliminal hits at Benitez in every single sentence and just ended it with sometimes only one person from the outside destroys a beautiful love affair. It's like it's like Shakespeare in the modern era, isn't it? It's beautiful. But um, yeah, obviously there's been some ridiculous rift between them. But with Benitez, it just does not surprise me. And I think this statement that Luca Dean's sent out 
it's going to do massive harm to Benitez. Just looking at all of the Everton fans' reaction to it, it's, it's made more of them turn on him if, if there needed to be any more reason to do that. Just because it's clear as day now that, and I think it's been for a while, and I remember now you mentioned it at the start of the season, that maybe he was never going to be accepted because of his Liverpool associations. And they've given him the chance. I mean, at the start of the season, they were trudging along decently. And then obviously they went on that really, really bad run of 10 games with, I think, no victory. And when you're losing, especially your best left-back, one of your best players, I mean, Luca Dean's been one of the best left-backs in the league for a good couple of years now. And he was definitely, definitely in the bracket of potentially joining, for example, a Champions League club, which is why it's been so surprising that he's actually gone to Villa. But, I mean, with that statement, I think it's so damaging on Benitez's reputation even more than it has been this season, just in terms of realising that behind the scenes, clearly there's a there's a there's a problem the dressing room is clearly not what it seems and that's reflecting on the pitch massively um and i think for luca dean is it's it's telling that he actually signed a contract last year with himself pledging his future to everton and everything's altered his plans completely and i think everton fans will be sympathetic towards him for that because he wanted to stay clearly and he wanted to make a, a career for himself and a name for himself at everton but as we've seen, it takes one person, a, a, a bad manager, someone who you don't get along with to change that whole journey that you're on. And now he finds himself at Aston Villa and it's a massive sight. It's a huge coup for Aston Villa that because he's levels above target. Uh, do you know what it is for me, Marley? It's, um, it's a strange one because I understand managers and players fall out all of the time, but Joel's got a good point with Rafa Benitez and uh, you know the Liverpool connection. Rafa is quite stubborn and pig-headed at times. You know, I remember Peter Crouch saying in an interview once that Rafa Benitez never tells him well done after a game. You know, he could have scored a hat-trick and Liverpool could have won the game convincingly and Rafa would never give you a pat on the back and say well done. And it works for some players like Steven Gerrard, you know, won things, Carragher won things under Benitez, etc. But, you know, in terms of the man management side of things, that can kind of um, rub a player the wrong way for want of a better term. And I think Everton are a weaker team without Luca Dean. And I thought, you know, I thought it was a manager's job to to keep the side as strong as possible. But I don't know what your take is, because you obviously have a, a a connection with Rafa and you admire him a lot, seeing as he used to manage your club. But c- can you see why some Evertonians are now thinking, well, hang on, he's come in, you know, kind of on the wrong foot anyway with his Liverpool links. And now he's sold our best player. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can see it. I can understand the... Um the sort of reservations that it brings. Um, I think with, with Benitez, I think he works best at a club which is on a real low ebb. Um, I think when he comes in and everybody gets behind him because he's better than what they had before, that's when he works at his best. I mean, at Newcastle, he took over um, and everybody was behind him. You know, I think he took over from Steve McLaren, for God's sake, so the bar wasn't exactly high. Um, and everyone got behind him and said, "Like, right, this is the guy, and we'll we'll run through walls for him because it, it this is what we need to do. Like, he's the guy who's been there and done it. And I think when you get to a a club like Everton, who have players that that believe in themselves a little bit more, like Luca Dini used to be at Barcelona. He doesn't need, or he doesn't think he needs, um, you know, constant changes in his game and things like that. And the, basically, when you get to a better club." And you've got better players. 
I think they they can have reservations about being told to change. Um, and that's why I think Benitez hasn't succeeded when he's gone to the likes of Real Madrid and uh, didn't do massively, didn't do amazing when he was at Napoli. Um, and then you've, he's, you know, he's come to Everton and I think the, the players like Dinia who've been to the top of the table with Barcelona and the French national team and things like that, I think when you start telling him to change and staying being a bit more defence first when he's been an attacking left back all of the all of the uh, his career, I think that gets to a point with Dini where he's like, Well, I've got this far by being an attacking left back. If 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 you want to change my game now, I'll go somewhere where somebody wants me and somebody wants to play with an attacking um attacking way and, and suits me a little bit more. And I think Villa will probably do that because they're signing signing good players. They're trying to play good football, and they've got a project there led by Gerard, and it's becoming an attractive club to sign for, um, or even more than it was under Dean Smith for for definite. So, I think with with Dean, you you can understand his his situation. Um, he he clearly wanted to stay at Everton, but the the roadblock that Rafa put in. Um, also with Rafa, he's very stubborn. Like if you don't, if there's a never-ending line of players that want to play for Rafa Benitez, and he knows that as well. So if somebody doesn't get on, get along with him, you'll find someone who does. And we've seen that in in December when they agreed the deal for Mikalenko, where they were just waiting for the uh, the transfer window to open so they can sign, they can um, announce the signing. So Mikalenko's already there, so he's already got his replacement. So it's it's no water off a duck's back for him. Is it a style of play thing though? Because Luca Dean's brilliant, and everyone knows he's a very good player, and he's probably Everton's, you know, one of their best players. And now he's gone. I mean, is mm-hmm. that something that Rafa doesn't rate him, or he just doesn't fit, and it seems a waste, and they can cash in on him? I mean, I mean, obviously we can't second guess Rafa's thought process. He's been a, an excellent manager in his career, but I'm just wondering what drove him to either fall out with Luca Dean, and is he watching a different game to all of the rest of us? Because I think Luca Dean's a very good player, so there must be a reason aside from the falling out, why Rafa Benitez would decide to get rid of him entirely? Well, this is why I mentioned about um, being told differently. Like, I obviously, I don't know anything specific about the situation, but I can imagine he, on the on the training ground, he's trying to be a bit more defence first because everything is shipping goals and, and in a poor position in the league. So what Benitez does is try to show you up. So the first thing that a defender is going to, Gonna be told on the trans on the um on the strategy board is to be defense first and to get your get your job done at the back first. Then you can think about you know contributing to the attack. But ultimately, I think Dinia's went pulled his face a little bit, um, and then they've had a falling out. Uh, that's that's how I could imagine it playing out. And Dinia's gone well. You know, this doesn't get the best out of me. And Benitez has said, "Well, I don't care because if it gets the best out of the team, it's not about you." And then they've both just butted heads, and it's ended up like this. So mm. I, I, that's how I can see it happening. Because um, you know, the the they've both probably got good points with this. We all know that Dini's been one of the probably the best left backs in the league. Um, and he can yeah, pro- only Trent Alexander Arnold has created more chances exactly, since the yeah. start of the 2018-19 season than Luca Dean. Exactly, he's you know he's got a great cross on him, good from set pieces, all the rest of it. So, and in brutal honesty, he can play higher than Aston Villa as well. So it's a coup for them to to pull him off. Um, and yeah, I mean, 
situation sorted itself out now. I don't think he wanted to leave Everton, but he did want to leave Rafa Benitez, and it's a case of um, if you can get that move, there's always going to be suitors for an attacking left-back who's produced what he's produced in the last two or three years. Well, Luca Dean has joined Aston Villa. Still no word on Anwar Elhazi going the other way to Everton for £15 million, but that is confirmed that Luca Dean is now an Aston Villa player. And I want to close off this transfer section of the podcast, Joel, by talking about your team, Manchester United. A couple of reports. Um, do we have to? <laughs> we do. Rumours that <laughs> Tariq Lamte could be interesting Manchester United coming in for £40 million. We'll leave that for now because I think the more interesting reports come around Eric Bailly, who only signed a new contract with the club last year. Allegedly, he could leave Manchester United on loan this window, with AC Milan one of the interested parties. Now, with question marks over the centre-back strength of Manchester United this season, uh, do you think this is a, a surprise that Eric Bailly's being linked with move away or not? It's not a surprise. But his, his career at Manchester United has just been so frustrating. It's just been a stop-start situation for the last four or five years now. Obviously, he's had a very, very long string of knee injuries. And as soon as he comes back, he's back on the injury table again, trying to get treatment for another two, three months. It's stop and start. And to be honest, when he has a long run of games, he is a quality centre-back. He just needs consistency, which... If you're going to be a top, 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 top defender at a top club, you need to be fit. And he's never, ever fit. He can't be relied upon. Um, and to be honest, I would be very, very surprised if he did go in January just because how frail our centre-backs are this season in terms of injuries, in terms of just poor form, um, just not being reliable. I don't think he's going to be allowed to leave, not, not until the summer at least. Um, but it's the, it's, the, it's the case with a lot of our defenders at the moment. None of them can be very properly relied upon. Even club captain, 80 million man Harry Maguire is seemingly on the fringes at the moment just because he's playing with zero confidence in his game. And it, for England, he looks like Maldini. And then when he comes back to Manchester United, he just seems a different player. Um, but with Eric Bailly, I mean, he shows glimpses here and there. But like I say... If you're going to be constantly on the rehab table trying to get fit, it's just not going to happen for you. And I, I, we've we've seen the signs. He came from Villarreal as a a young 23 year old guy with a lot of potential, and he's been at the club for four or five years now. And when you're still clinging on to someone's potential, as we've seen, for example, with Phil Jones, Manchester United seem to not have this cutthroat ruthlessness when it comes to players who are not there for the team enough and I'm not saying in terms of professionalism I'm talking in terms of injuries and actually being able to stand on the pitch and it's just too many times now where contracts are getting awarded to players who are not being able to be relied upon and I think with Bay he will end up getting moved on and I think it's more so on his side that he's not getting game time but you know it's a bit of a paradox because he's not fit at all so um, yeah, I, I, he won't go this this uh, this month just because we're so short at the back. And who's to say, you know, Rafael Varane, who's had his injury troubles, will end up being out again for a good number of weeks, um, as well as Victor Lindelof. So we're too frail at the back to let go anyone. But um, yeah, in the summer, I definitely think that that will be the case for the new incoming manager as well, who may see him in his plans. Who knows? I think it's a great point. That's it for today's Football Social Daily. We'll have more transfer news for you throughout the rest of the month here on the podcast and to keep up to date with it all in podcast form make sure you hit subscribe that way you won't miss an episode of the podcast 
Again, over 1 million downloads of this podcast every season, which is absolutely unbelievable. We couldn't do it without you guys. So keep listening in, keep hitting subscribe, keep telling your mates, and uh, we'll catch you next time here on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk.